Welcome to Women in Charge, a podcast about women who are in charge of things and the things they are in charge of. This week, I'm speaking with Ellen Stofan, the director of the Smithsonian National Air and Space Museum and former chief scientist at NASA. Today, we talk about the struggle with gravity, how women are faring in science, and how to manage the day-to-day assignments and responsibilities of your team when your team's goal is as outrageous as put people on Mars. Thanks for joining us, Ellen. Happy to be here. Let's start with the question of what are you currently in charge of and what does that entail? So the Smithsonian's National Air and Space Museum consists of actually two different museums, our building on the National Mall as well as another facility out uh, near Dulles Airport called the Stephen F. Udvar-Hazy Center. Both my museums are amazing. Out at Udvar-Hazy, we have the Space Shuttle Discovery. We have an SR-71 Blackbird. And downtown at our National Mall building, which we're about to do a major renovation project on, we hold, for example, a lot of the legacy of the Apollo program and then slightly historic artifacts from fairly historic objects like the 1903 Wright Flyer, the first airplane to ever fly, and the Spirit of St. Louis, which was, of course, uh, where Charles Lindbergh crossed the Atlantic for the first time in an airplane. So you took on this position five months ago. Can you talk a little bit about how big the team is that you're leading there And how do you think about directing that team to drive the outcomes you want and avoid the outcomes you don't want? So we have about 300 people at the museum, and our team ranges from people who are curators who study the history of the artifacts to exhibit designers to communicators to people who are helping us raise money to pay for the renovation that we're doing of the inside of the museum. So we have quite a diverse team, and they're an amazing team, and it's been really fun to come in over the last five months get to know the team, understand what their strengths are, and to think, how do we take this group? How do we take the world's most popular museum? Okay, we're actually usually the third most popular museum, but close enough. How do we take this iconic museum and take it to the next level? And so that's been a really fun process over the last five months. What does the next level look like for you? What are some specific things that when you see the team achieving them, you think, ah, yes, that's exactly what I was hoping to get? And what are some things that you think, oh, I don't want us to do so much of that? Well, we're in the midst of renovating the entire museum downtown. So that means all 23 galleries and exhibit spaces downtown are being reimagined. So it's how do you take this history of this human struggle with gravity to learn how to fly, to make it to the top of the atmosphere, to make it to space? And and what is that story? And if you look at how museums have historically told those stories, it's sometimes been told through the great man theory, you know, the idea that one iconic person has really moved everything forward. Uh, And a lot of it has been just like, here's the artifact, here's a label. That's sort of the old-fashioned way museums were. And now it's much more about storytelling. How can we tell the story of who built this? Why did they build it? And almost inevitably, it's the story of a team who actually got something accomplished. The Wright brothers weren't the only people on the beach that day. There were photographers. There were people who helped them move the airplane. There was a mechanic. So Everyone has a team. And so how do you tell those team stories, which I think are truly inspiring? And so a lot of it is understanding from my curators, who are truly the experts on these artifacts, what are those stories? And how can we make sure working with people who understand how to communicate, especially to 21st century audiences, how do we make sure we're working to inspire that next generation of explorers? The role that you're in now has its own challenges and is about kind of education and communication and narrative, as you just described it. When you were the chief scientist at NASA, presumably the role had a different responsibility set and was more about 
research and other factors? Or is that is that a fair assessment or no? You know, there's actually interesting overlaps. I guess I hadn't really thought about it. There are interesting overlaps between the two. Because while I was at NASA, one of the things that I was working on was what is our vision for getting humans finally beyond low Earth orbit where we've been so long on the International Space Station? How do we get humans to Mars, which is something I'm really passionate about. And so a lot of it was how do you how do you put together a team to really think about this? How do you think about how to accomplish something so difficult as getting humans to Mars? But how do you motivate a team to have a common vision? And how do you look at the skills you have internally as an organization to say, how can we make this happen? How can we be innovative? How can we maybe not look at this in kind of the linear way we have, but are, are there ways to look at this problem sort of sideways? And in a sense, that's what I'm still doing at the museum where you say, all right, we have to change these galleries, but are there ways to sort of change the narrative? Are there different ways of looking at, which in some case are quite old stories, right? The story of the Wright Flyer is a story we've had since 1903. So are there are there new ways? Are there new narratives? Because a lot of what I think our challenge is, is that 21st century audiences especially kids, take in information in a very different way than people of my generation did. You know, they're much more digitally inclined. They're not going to probably stand there and read a lot of text on a label. And so how do you find new ways of conveying information to this much more diverse, much more digitally inclined 21st century kid? Will you indulge uh, two questions from my two 21st century kids <laughs> sure. whom, I, whom I told I was interviewing you and they were very excited about it? Uh, one son wants to know how do they hang the planes and other spacecraft from the ceiling? Like how do you hang them from the ceiling and make sure they don't fall on everybody? And the second question is how do you get the planes and big things there and inside the building? You know, those are both incredibly great questions because that's something we're really working on right now because <laughs> – Part of this reimagining the interior of the museum and repairing the exterior of the museum, which has become quite worn and damaged over time, is that we actually have to get all those planes down off the ceiling and out of the building to go out to our facility near Dulles Airport to have some conservation work done on them and to store them until we're ready to take them back into the museum downtown. So how we get those aircraft hanging from the ceiling, it won't help your son for me to say very carefully is how we rig them. <laughs> and actually, we we do have some real experts who, for them, how we hang those airplanes, how we rig them from the ceiling so that they don't sway around, that they're shown at their best angle to give people a sense of the dynamism of that particular aircraft is really an art. And, and we have these people who are great artists at rigging aircraft. And it, it really is an art. They usually get it right, but sometimes they have to add more cables in case, you know, the air conditioning comes on in a weird way and they start swaying around. So we really do a lot of work to get them hung carefully. But what we're going to start doing in January of uh, next year is we're going to start taking them down off the ceiling, which is a whole nother long and somewhat interesting process. I can tell your son that one of those artifacts we kind of wonder how they got it in the building ourselves, and that's the model of Skylab, which for people who have been in the museum, it's almost two stories tall. And to be honest with you, I really don't know how they got it in the museum. But we do actually have large doors down at the west end of the museum, which is the opposite end from the capital side. And we have very large doors that we're going to be taking artifacts in and out of the museum on that end of the museum as we get ready to send them out to uh, Udvar Hazy. 
And a lot of these artifacts are going to be transported on trucks in the middle of the night down 66. It's funny. I love the way you describe uh, the museum's mission as talking about humanity's struggle with gravity. But this is a struggle with gravity. This is a potential (laughs) teachable moment. It's interesting to hear you talk about the role as as chief scientist as NASA, because in, in talking about leadership challenges with people, I think often leaders of teams know what the tasks are at hand and have a vague sense of what the tasks are that their team need to accomplish and have different ideas about how to communicate that. And often one of the lessons that management gurus and other people talk about is, oh, but you really have to explain what the mission is, what's the vision, what's the broad goal. It strikes me that at NASA, perhaps you had the opposite problem. Like literally, if your team's goal is we're going to put humans on Mars, that's the most kind of insane, astonishing, motivating, seems impossible goal. It's very clear. It's very abstract. It feels to me very far from what Certainly I as a human, but also my understanding of what we as humans, as humanity, know how to do at the present moment. So it almost seems like you maybe have the reverse question, which is how do you take the crazy big goal and break it down into what does Joe do tomorrow? What does Jane do in the lab on Tuesday? How do you do that? How do you figure out where to start on a goal that big? You know, I think you have to keep it simple. And and that's one of the things when you're trying to develop what we call an architecture for something like how do you get to Mars? You have to say, how do you at least start with the simplest steps possible? And we had an administrator once at NASA who said, try to minimize the number of miracles that you're hoping will happen. And so you can't count for, in, in this case, it would be huge advances in, in technology. So you have to sort of say, Given what I have the capability to do now, can I at least set out an architecture or a path that is the simplest path? Because that's usually the least expensive path. And obviously, one of the issues is anyone could come up with huge, incredibly interesting architectures with armadas of spacecraft going towards Mars that have people on them. But you say, is that affordable? And so one of the things you're always having to balance is – Here's the money I have. How can I have a stepwise plan? Wait, sorry. Is that – I was not aware that was the case, that actually if we could spend infinite funds, it would be easy to get people to Mars and the problem is the budget? It's a combination of budget and technology. Huh. If you think back to the time of Apollo, we're spending a lot of time at the Air and Space Museum really reflecting on the Apollo program. It's the 50th anniversary of Apollo this coming year, wow. the 50th anniversary of landing on the moon. And at that time, NASA was 4% of the U.S. federal budget. It is now 0.4% of the federal budget. So yeah, if you put a lot of money into something, you're going to accelerate the pace. In some cases, we need technology development, and that that is not always a smooth and easily predictable path. But on the other hand, look at what they accomplished with Apollo. You had President Kennedy saying, within a decade, we're going to land a human on Mars. And yet at that – I'm sorry, on the moon – And yet at that point in the early 1960s, Kennedy Space Center didn't really exist, Johnson Space Center. We had all this infrastructure that had to be built. We, for people who've seen hidden figures, we had to figure out math to figure out how to get humans up there and get them safely back. We know all that now. So in that sense, getting humans to Mars is actually much easier, in my opinion, than it was to get a the humans to the moon. So you have to look at any problem. And sometimes when I'm talking even to my kids, I said, you know, this is how you figure out how to go to Mars. You, You understand what your goal is. You understand what the constraints are. For example, it might be budget. And then you say, how do we develop a stepwise plan to get from here to there? But you have to know where you're going. And that clear vision of 
for example, I want humans on the surface of Mars by the end of the 2030s. That's a clear goal. And now I can say, all right, there's multiple paths to get there. How much do those cost? What are the technologies? That sort of thing. Okay, that makes sense. I guess the broader question I'm asking is how do you think about leading kind of research and planning for exploration versus leading kind of communication and education, which strike me as the two distinct roles? Well, I think there's similarities in this issue that I think you need a clear vision. You know, for example, if I look at education around the Air and Space Museum, you know, you have to say, all right, we've made a clear decision at the museum that we want to reach middle school kids because we know that's when kids tend to turn away from science, technology, engineering, and math subjects, especially girls and especially kids from underrepresented groups. So, you know, that's our vision. So we have a clear vision, right? We're going to try to reach middle school kids and inspire them about aviation and space. Now you say, well, how are we going to get there? So you say, okay, what's my budget? What are my creative ideas? And can we create programming that inspires kids, helps teachers, and has the potential to be scalable? Because you can say, okay, maybe we can help 30 kids at a time or 60 kids at a time, but wouldn't it be great if we could create programs that we could then export beyond the museum for other people to use. So you have to develop what are your values? What are you trying to accomplish? And all those things I think are incredibly important. To me, the execution is the much easier part. It's understanding what the constraints are and understanding exactly what it is you're trying to accomplish is the more difficult part. And to me, once you map that out and you map it out as carefully as you can, then executing it becomes much easier because you're walking within what you've defined is now a much narrower path. Did you imagine when you... Uh, we're just starting out in your career that you would have these leadership roles that you've taken on? Not in the slightest. You know, and I think it was a it was a combination of things. I think it was partially probably being a girl growing up in the 1960s, where, you know, when I looked to women in science, those stories were hard to find. You know, there was Marie Curie, Florence Nightingale, you know, Jane Goodall, Mary Leakey. And that, you know, those stories just weren't out there. And so the role models I had were of women just more doing research and moving science forward. And I thought, okay, that's that's what I would like to do because I didn't see women leaders out there. And that is one of the reasons that I think it's so important. You know, when people ask me, is it important that you're the first w- woman director of the Air and Space Museum? I would like to say no, but I think it's yes because I want girls to think, well, that's a possible career path for me. And the more women are in leadership positions – the more it gives girls that vision to say, well, maybe that's a path I would like to go down. I frankly, I, I stumbled, you know, into it. Tell us a little bit about your early career and about your research. And I mean, you you started down the road studying planetary geology. What were you studying? What were you trying to find out? And and what were those early years in your career like? You know, I've always been really interested in the question of how does this planet work? Because to me, it really all does come back to the Earth. How does the Earth operate? And to me, looking at other planets and the ones that I've studied the most are Venus, Mars, and one of the moons of Saturn called Titan – And all of these bodies in the solar system have pieces of their history or their present that helps us understand the past, present, and potential future of this planet. So Venus has a runaway greenhouse atmosphere uh, that informs us about greenhouse atmospheres and how they behave. It's also a very volcanic planet, and I study volcanoes around the solar system. Uh, Titan, Saturn's moon, is the only other body in the solar system besides Earth that has 
open bodies of liquid. Okay, they're not water. They're actually seas of basically gasoline. It's liquid methane and ethane. But here you can understand how does a body of water interact with its atmosphere? How do waves form? And could there be anything possibly living in those seas? So when I wanted to study the solar system, it was really always about turning back and saying, how does this planet work? And how can we use all that information to better understand this planet? And so early in my career, and actually through most of my career, I really was one of the only women in the room. And so it was always, to me, intimidating to look around a room and say, there's nobody in here who looks like me. And I even had a fellow student once when we were talking about trying to find jobs after graduate school. He looked at me and he said, well, you have a husband. You don't need a job. And you, know, you think, did I go to college for 10 years to, <laughs> to like go home and do nothing? So, you know, those kind of things were frustrating. But I must say, one of the things that's really important to me now is that I was never in a position where people told me no. My parents supported me. Teachers supported me. My college professors supported me. I, I did not have a situation where I was harassed. Did I have ridiculous comments made to me now and then? Yes. But I'm thinking of all the girls and all the women who throughout the years were actively discouraged from going into science fields, who were harassed, who left. And to me, this, you know, it's like I just see this brain drain that has happened over the last decades because women have not been made to feel welcome. People of color have not been made to feel welcome. And that, to me, is what has to change because we've just lost capability because of that. Were there particular things that you did along the way to change practices in labs and places where you worked to try to facilitate a more welcoming environment? Or were there things that people did to facilitate a more welcoming environment for you? I think one of the things that's been important to me and that I certainly try to pass on is I had incredible mentors throughout my career, not just mentors, but sponsors. So people who not only supported me, gave me great advice, but who also would say, oh, there's a position open. Maybe Ellen would be a good candidate for that. And I think everyone needs that. And it's something that because it happened for me, because that is part of the reason I am in the position I am today, um, it's important for me to kind of pass that on. And when I was at uh, NASA headquarters when I was chief scientist, I spent a lot of time working with our team on diversity and inclusion issues. And it's that inclusion piece that I feel is so incredibly important because it's not just about saying we need to open the door and let people in. It's how do you make them feel welcome? How do you make them feel valuable part of the team? And how do you make them feel not different so that they don't feel welcome? And I, I think we're getting better at the diversity piece. I think we still have a long way to go in our society on that inclusion piece. So when you think about trying to lead a team of people in this goal of really connecting with middle schoolers, right? You've identified this goal. You've figured out what the humans on Mars is of uh, how do you propagate that amongst this whole team of more than 300 people? How do you communicate to them what the goal is? How do you track the results? How do you encourage people to evaluate and test their ideas? What's the process of putting that vision into practice once you've articulated it? Well, the good thing is that vision was started actually before I got there. And so it's already been propagated through. But what I'm trying to do is to say, how can we, as we go through this transformation of the interior of the museum process, how can I get the team to make sure that that they're following through with this? Because it's one thing to say, oh, let's pay attention to middle schoolers. Okay, but how are we doing that? And so does the team have clear direction from me on on that being important? And then what are they expected to come up with? And what is the schedule for that? And is there budget and people allocated for that? And do we have experts on staff who can actually be providing that? 
And if there is content outside the museum that we can borrow or people we can partner with, are we looking for those things? So I think a lot of it is with the staff trying to make sure that they understand how important that is and then making sure that they're actually following through. And I think this is someone that actually everyone at the museum is really passionate about. It's not just my passion. It really goes throughout the staff of saying, you know, that's why we're here. That's what we want these artifacts to do. We want them to inspire that next generation. But it's one thing to think that, and it's another to think, are we working with middle school core curriculum standards so we're giving teachers things they can use? Are we making sure we represent all faces so that every kid who comes into the museum can see themselves in the stories? And are we going to provide teachers uh, materials so that we make their lives easy? We don't have to make it so they come into the museum and don't really know how this is relevant to them. So those are the things we're trying to make sure. Are we dotting all the I's and crossing all the T's so that we attack this problem from every angle? So once you made the switch from research into leadership roles in these various institutions. What are some mistakes you made early on that you learned from and then tempered your course going forward? What were some things that you kind of had to figure out on your way to being an effective leader? You know, I think effective leaders know how to build teams and they know how to manage people. And that was something that didn't come naturally to me. And so it was something I had to learn. And and luckily, I got to have lots of leadership opportunities over the years, from leading small science teams, helping to lead small science teams, to leading larger teams, to finally leading a mission proposal process that took about five years and had a lot of people involved. And, and I think over that time, I, I learned about listening, how to bring a group to consensus, the importance of making sure people have their say. And again, it, it's also understanding the humility of of making sure, back to that listening piece, that you're not listening just for listening's sake, but that you actually might be wrong about something. And so that while you certainly have a vision and a strong goal and an idea in mind, somebody on your team might have a better idea. And even though you're the leader, you actually really need to listen to people because sometimes they're going to be telling you you're off course and you are and you need to figure that out. And obviously, I found that out sometimes the hard way of, <laughs> of being a little off course and not listening. And sometimes it was just how do I work in a difficult situation of stress and not take my stress out on other people? How do I deal with people who are taking their stress out on other people? And how do I bring us back to a point where we can all work together as a, as a team and respect each other? And those are things I, I just learned over the years. And you know, I don't think I had that many really bad experiences, but, you know, you stumble and you learn and you get criticized and you have to suck it up and figure out, <laughs> figure out, all right, I didn't handle that well. And and a lot of it has to be this issue of self-reflection. How could I have handled that better? How could I have done that better? And how am I, again, how am I listening to my team to make sure that we're functioning well? Are there structures you've created to make it possible for your team to share that kind of feedback? Are there tips, you, t tricks you have for making sure they feel safe offering criticism or, the, or that you're getting that kind of input? I think that's something that sometimes comes with time, but sometimes you have to actually encourage it and say, no, I, if you have no negative feedback, and it's asking for negative feedback. Um, and I, I'm constantly telling my team that, you know, how did you think that went? What could we have done differently to make this situation come out better? And, and I think it is offering to the team to say, you know, I value your opinion 
please give me your opinion. And if you can show them, I am listening to you, I don't always agree with you. But here in this case, I took your opinion and acted on it. In these two cases, I didn't. And in that way, the more you listen and act on people's advice, the more they start to understand you are listening to them. At the Air and Space Museum, they already had a process of having town halls. We had them at NASA also. And I think it's incredibly important to have a forum where employees feel, I can ask questions. I can say, what are we doing things? They can have feedback and say, you know, why are we doing this this way? And I think creating an open communication system in a workplace, and again, luckily that already existed at the Air and Space Museum, I'm just able to take advantage of it, is incredibly important. You talked about the, the structures for making sure that people are able to give you criticism and feedback. I think one thing that young people just figuring out how to be managers sometimes struggle with is how to give negative feedback. One of the things you have to do when you're leading a team and not just leading yourself is figure out how to take that observation, reflection, criticism, and change for next time, and instead of pointing it inward towards yourself and your own work, share that with someone else. And I think that's a big stumbling block for young managers and possibly particularly for young female managers. But honestly, I think for all kinds of young managers, just how do you tell people they did something wrong and how to do it better? What's your advice to to people just figuring out how to do that? I think it's a hard thing. And I will say in most organizations I've been in, both men and women have a hard time giving that negative feedback. And so you go and you look in people's personnel files and it's like, Lake Wobegon, you know, every employee is outstanding. And you're like, okay, not every employee is outstanding. I'm not always outstanding. And so how are you creating a culture that says, I can provide you negative feedback, but boy, the minute you do something right, I'm going to give you a lot of positive feedback. So I think it's that balance that's important. And if I have a young manager, I say it's really important for you to follow through with negative feedback. Because if you don't, the problem is just going to grow and grow and grow. And you've got to come forward and say to the person, you know what, this is not meeting expectations. And and if you frame it in a very professional way, no matter how hard it is, because none of us like doing this, but it is so critically important to not let a problem get to the point. And this is going to sound ridiculous, but you told me you have two five-year-olds. You know this from your children, right? <laughs> if you If you don't step up on a problem and say, we need to change this, why would the person change their behavior? Then it becomes your problem because you were the manager who didn't give the feedback that caused the, the employee to change their behavior. So so then it's on you. And that's the other thing I try to work with managers to understand. It's on you if you don't take care of this. I noticed your locution there, not meeting expectations is mm-hmm. a little just like, there's an abstract bar and you need to get there. It's not about right. my feelings. It's no. just about facts. Because for most people, it instantly becomes emotional. None of us take criticism well, right? I mean, I don't take no one. No one does. It doesn't feel good to be criticized. And so I think you have to keep it objective. You have to keep it on such a professional level. And then again, you have to counter it by saying, you know, here's some things you're doing really well. Here's some things that I would like to see a better performance on or where you're not meeting expectations. And I think that balance is important. If you're going to criticize someone, find a way to also compliment them so that they don't walk away just thinking, oh, my gosh, the sky is falling. Unless maybe the sky is actually falling. Right. There's that, that's a different conversation, <laughs> yeah. figuring out how to be honest about that, too. I want to talk to you about how you think things are for women in science now as compared to when you were starting out. Um, and you've spoken to it, obviously, in, in the work that you're doing at the museum. But do you think things are better or worse for a young woman entering science today? 
You know, I, I would love to say that they're much, much better. But when you read the headlines, you know these problems still persist. I, I do think they're overall better. And why I think they are overall better is because of the sheer number of women that are now coming into these fields in some areas. Because, for example, if you look in the biological sciences, women are almost 50 percent. Um, in geology, though, women are about maybe 30-some percent. If you go into engineering, computer science, all of a sudden the numbers start dropping to about 20 percent. And the numbers, especially in computer science and engineering, have not been moving very much. And that's incredibly frustrating. And I think this, you know, everybody says this, it's a pipeline problem, right? If you're not encouraged when you're in middle school that it's cool for a girl to think about engineering, if you're not encouraged in high school, if a science teacher makes you feel like women don't belong in a science class or your peers make you feel that way, if you face harassment at some point in college or you go to graduate school and your fellow students make you feel not welcome because you're a woman. All along the way, those things have to be corrected. Are they getting better? Yes. Are they anywhere near where we want them to be? No. But what I love and what encourages me is that what I've seen over the last five years, but obviously especially over the last year or so, is women stepping forward in a way that my generation just didn't. My generation was the, you know, avoid that professor. Don't, don't, don't be in a room late at night with him. You know, this generation is like, wait, stop. I don't need to, I can't, you know, I'm not going to tolerate being treated that way. And that's what I love. I do think the Me Too movement is making a huge difference. I do think this next generation of women, women have a much stronger voice than my generation did. And that makes me really hopeful. I wish my generation had had a stronger voice, but we were too intimidated. There were too few of us. The other thing is, I think we have a much better understanding of implicit bias than we used to. And so with all the piles and piles and piles of research that has been done that show that women aren't, aren't being treated equally, that show that women of color are treated even worse than white women are. You know, we have this research, we have the basis to say things are not going well, and increasingly we have the basis to say what are practices that actually make it better for women. And so to me, the fact that we can now move towards research-based solutions means we're more likely to actually come to a point where we are able to take advantage of the talents of all of our population, not just half of it. Do you think that research-based solutions and research-based arguments about the importance of diversity and inclusion are particularly persuasive in science? Um, have you found that just because of the focus on facts and the discovery of knowledge, that that kind of argument around this question can be more effective in science spheres? It varies. I'll be honest with you, it varies. You know, I think the myth of a meritocracy is something that persists in all fields. You know, for people who are in those positions to think that they didn't get there because because they're the best, but rather they got there because they are white, white male is is hard. Of course, they want to say, no, it's a meritocracy. I got here because I'm the best. You know, men get the bulk of the research money because we do better work. But when you're told, look, I have this research that shows that women's proposals aren't treated equally, that women aren't cited as much, that women of color get cited in research, which then feeds into how easy it is to get money less than men are, you can say, okay, it's clearly not a meritocracy when people are being judged on their gender, when be people are being judged on the ethnicity of their names. And again, there's extensive research that shows this is what happens. But it's hard because people want to believe we live in a meritocracy. But we're not there yet. But we can get there because we have the research, we know what to do to fix it, and we'll get there. I want to talk actually about budgeting. That was one other 
question I had for you, because you have now had big leadership positions in these two institutions that are incredibly dependent on federal funding. And of course, for any leader, the question of what's the budget, what are the budget constraints, what are the budget targets, that's a huge part of how you figure out what the tools are you have to achieve any task, even one much more mundane, literally, than going to Mars. But how do you navigate that uncertainty around the level of economic commitment to what you're doing and building, being dependent on forces outside the walls of the institution you're in? I think for anybody who works in the federal government, I think sometimes people who are outside the federal government forget the fact that all of us who are federally funded, we are all taxpayers too. And so I'm just as concerned as everybody is that my tax dollars are being spent in a way that's responsible that's accountable, and that I'm making the best use of every penny. And obviously, the uncertainty that goes on year to year to year in the federal budget situation, which is the reality, you know, you can complain about it, but it it is the way the system works. For an agency like NASA, it is very difficult because, you know, I would always joke in saying, you know, NASA is a 10 to 20 year agency that basically lives in a one to two year town. Um, and so how do you how do you do that? How do you set these long term goals when budgets and uncertainty? But, you know, a good scientist will say, OK, that's a variable. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm going to treat that as a variable and I'm going to look at various, you know, it just is. So complaining about it doesn't doesn't change the situation. I think at the Smithsonian, you know, we're an interesting institution where we're part federally funded and part privately funded. We get donations from very generous donors and we also have retail and food that we make money from. We obviously don't charge admission. That's the great thing about the Smithsonian being the nation's museum is that we're free and open 364 days a year. But so you do have these two sources of money coming in and you have to say, you know, am I putting my federal dollars to their best use? And then what can I do with this additional funding that I have to really create a rich program that gives everyone who walks through the door of my museum an amazing experience and makes them appreciate the wonder of flight. What advice would you give to a young woman entering science today? Go for it. (laughs) You know, the one thing I always say to girls is don't let anyone ever make you feel like you don't belong here. And this was even in the days before um, Hidden Figures came out. I would say, you know, think about Katherine Johnson, who would go sit at a table who forced her way into meetings where she was not wanted and was regarded as being lesser. But she knew that she had skills, um, that she had talent, that she had information, that the mission wasn't going to succeed unless she was there. So she did what I think many of us would find very difficult to do. She walked into the room. (laughs) She said, no, you need me at the meeting and I need to be at the table. For a lot of us, I think, you know, we have to some extent imposter syndrome where you're like, oh, do I really belong at the table? Do I really have the information? Do I really need to be there? And I tell girls, channel your inner Katherine Johnson. You belong at the table. You have a contribution to make. And don't ever forget that. And don't let anybody ever tell you no. That is great advice, as advice I would share and endorse. I think one thing that's hard for women at all ages in their careers also hard for everybody probably, but maybe particularly hard for women, is how to balance that sense of bucking yourself up and giving yourself confidence in the face of people who maybe don't appreciate what you have to contribute as much as they should with humility about the fact that you are young and you are still learning and you could still make mistakes and you probably don't know as much as some set of people. Obviously, both things can be true simultaneously. 
What advice would you give people for navigating that emotional terrain of having a reasonable amount of humility and self-doubt while simultaneously projecting absolute confidence that you belong? You know, advice somebody gave me early in my career was actually one of my big mentors, a guy named Charles Alachi, for, who for a long time ran the Jet Propulsion Laboratory. He said to me, don't, don't come to me with problems, come to me with solutions. And, and while that, that sounds trivial, I think if you keep your mind focused on that is to say, all right, I, I see things that could be better. Don't just point out this thing is not very good. Be able to say, I don't think this thing is optimized. Here are two ideas that could possibly make it better. Or, you know, if three of us went into a room together, we can come back to you with a better solution. And I think it's putting yourself in that position as a problem solver. And I think if if we can get women who are not feeling confident to say, you know what, I'm going to think of myself as a problem solver. Can I identify a problem and can I offer some solutions? But part of it, I think, comes down to, and this is, you know, I know this from people of color. I know this from white women. It's you spend part of your time acting. You're acting like you are much more confident than you are. You're acting like you are much braver and it's exhausting but I think that's part of being an early career person when you are in a room where no one looks like you. I like the advice to focus on solving problems because then it's less about am I talented or am I smart? It's more focused on what do I have to contribute? Yeah. And then maybe gets maybe that makes it easier to be like, I do have something to contribute. Yeah. Because if you're if you're really focused, all of us can always go into a situation and say, Well, oh, those people didn't do a good job or I see I see an answer, but sometimes we don't feel confident about speaking up. So it's. I do think it's that. How can I help solve a problem? And can I make sure I phrase it that way? Because then people are going to turn to you and say, well, that person's not just pointing out this is flawed. They're actually offering us some paths forward. Even if you don't have a solution, can you suggest a path to a solution? That's really good advice. You've spoken about some of the heartening things for women in the field. Um, are there any disheartening signs or any things that you find troubling about how women are faring in science right now? I would like to see the numbers moving more more than they do. When you look at the the fact that women are actually 4% of commercial aviation pilots, when, when you know that this number of women in computer science, you know, again, in engineering, that's hovering around 20%, despite the fact that trying to get, for example, girls engaged in STEM, I mean, that's been going on for a bit, you, you know, and why aren't those numbers moving more? And I think that's something that, again, you know, I'm the perpetual scientist. Why aren't the numbers moving? What can we do to make them move? Where do we see successes and how can we amplify and scale those programs? One of the programs I love, and I'm pretty sure it's at Harvey Mudd College in California, one of the things they've done with their engineering program for women, for example, is to really have an attitude of, Rather than being, we're going to try to weed people out of this program, it's how are we going to keep people in the program? So they have a really strong mentoring and tutoring program to make sure that everyone has the opportunity to be successful. That hasn't been, you know, if you think <laughs> if you think back to like college calculus or, you know, freshman calculus, freshman engineering, it's like we're only going to keep the best. That tends to drive women away. So let's think of how we design our programs to keep women in. And they are seeing the numbers move in those programs. When they have programs that focus on engineering for the developing world, engineering to solve problems like climate change, women tend to apply at much higher rates rather than just for mechanical engineering. And so when they're, it's applied to a problem, it sounds appealing. So let's find those pockets where the numbers are moving and let's try to expand that. I will say when you have those solutions, 
Not only do women thrive, men thrive also. This isn't an or, it's an and. Can we make, you know, people think of it sometimes, I think, as being a pie. And if women's slice of that pie gets bigger, you know, men's slice is getting smaller. But no, let's make the pie bigger. Let's welcome everyone. And if we support women in engineering and computer science, we're going to support men, too. We're supporting everyone. And that just makes all boats rise. Thank you so much for your time. I loved hearing your advice. Thank you. This is the final episode of our six-episode run of Women in Charge. I want to thank Jessica Jupiter, our wonderful producer, June Thomas and Cleo Levin for their excellent editorial support, all of my fantastic interviewees, and all of you for listening. <laughs>